Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro is a US conservative political commentator. He presents a daily current affairs show called The Ben Shapiro Show on YouTube. His new book, The Authoritarian Moment, will be released on July 27th. Like Ben Shapiro, I guess from, you know, like what how I imagine the audience of Luminary Under the Skin to be, like Ben Shapiro is pretty outspoken and he's conservative. I went on his show and I found I've got a lot of things value-wise in common. But when it comes to sort of cultural beliefs, I think we've got a lot of things that we perhaps disagree with. And so if you're not comfortable listening to people that you disagree with, then what? Life's going to be tough, firstly. <laughs> but, like, but secondly, like for example, he speaks for a long while around Israel. And my suspicion is a lot of people will find what he says about Israel at odds with what they believe. And... My personal perspective is, as I've sort of said before publicly, that I respect people's rights to communicate. And I think it's important now more than ever for people with different views to communicate openly and for us to find territories that we have in common. That said, my intention in this podcast with Ben was to understand him, not to, you know, it would have been rather presumptuous, I think, with someone as well uh, versed as he is and as deeply committed to his beliefs as uh, someone has committed his beliefs to their beliefs as dear Ben to think that I was going to undertake a mission if you're uh, if you want to hear me on his show I speak a lot more openly about my perspective and he very respectfully gave me the floor and I did the same on this one so I'm just letting you know that okay uh, here's some comments from the Jordan Belfort um, episode now time for comments 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 New Joseph. Imagine a world where Wall Street, big tech and governments are held to the same standard and level of accountability that we the people are. Yeah. Yeah. What are you looking at? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's your role in all this rag bag? Don't know. Would you like your birthday present? Yeah, I've got Colin's head in this box beside me. When are you going to have it? When I go home, maybe. Why didn't you eat it here? I ate his neck attached to the face. No, the face is left. Do you realise that you are <laughs> referring too specifically to the anatomy of that cake, caterpillar yeah. cake? Most yeah. people don't normally see it like that. Well, Laura said she was happy to have the tail. So <laughs> She's another one that sees the world like you do, in some sort of little brain circle of synthesisia. It's a great world over here. <laughs> it's a disgusting little hell pit you've created. Not sure, says... I'm still angry no one went to jail for ruining millions of people's lives. Yeah. Here's some listener shout-outs. Listener shout-outs. Kelly... H now what is it? Listener shout-outs. That was very poorly timed and tentative, <laughs> if I may say, Jen. I expect better of you. I'm still getting used to the live... Triggering. I expect better of you. I expect it better of anyone. I'd expect better if we'd have given a monkey... A week's training and a stick to poke the colour box with. No one trained me. Well, I can tell you, it becomes clearer <laughs> with every passing day that someone should. Yeah. <laughs> From the moment you were born to oh. this moment right now, no one has spent a, a second, it seems, educating you in any discipline what? at all. 
Well, you've been to school, haven't you? What have you got? Did you get a degree in something? Who's got the yeah. more qualifications, me or you? Me. Me, because I did that thing on religion and global no, politics. because you didn't finish. Drop it. I picked up the main Your thrust. Your college drop it. I'm not a dropout, <laughs> Jen. I saw through the veil. I had absorbed the info. I became friends with Brad Evans and some other <laughs> academics. And I, if I, do you want me to do a dissertation right now? Because I'll do one. Will you? What should it be on, Jen? Um, Communication? No. Yeah. Persuasive um, communication. Persuasive communication. <laughs> you can persuade them that this is a dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> that's very cheeky, Jen. Jen, that's the banter decanter right there. You bantered me. Banter decanter. <laughs> you, you bantered me, Jen. You bantered me good. Yeah. Good work. It's the start of a new year for me. Why? Oh, because it's your birthday. Yeah. How old are you now? 31. 40. Oh. <laughs> 40. <laughs> okay, Jen. Well, you look very, 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 very... Jen, just... Uh, I don't know how to finish this sentence. <laughs> Good. <laughs> That'll do. Kelly Harvard. Hello from... This is a listener shout-out, by the way. Listener shout-outs. Oh god, that took so long. No training, no training at all. Absolutely appalling. Get used to the colours, is what I would say to you. (laughs) Hello from the colour box. Hello from Dubai, says Kelly Harvard. Luminary just launched in this reason. I've been enjoying your wonderful content. It is keeping me sane while the world goes mad around me. I love the chit chat with Jenny before incredible conversation. Although, is it impolite for me to ask, is she mentally ill? Well, the truth is, Kelly, yes, she is. <laughs> Yonton Funstock. What an amazing name. Where do you think someone comes from with a name like that? Yonton Funstock. That's an amazing name. Is it real? Maybe not. Cause, but the fun, fun is spelled P-H. Oh, Vietnam. And they're Yon, Y-O-N, T-E-N, Yonton Funstock. Funstock. I'm enjoying the small beauties of your latest. Yeah, possibly this is um, like a, a, a South Asian dialect, do you think? Yeah. I'm enjoying the small beauties of your latest culturally informative podcast after just concluding a retreat. That's a beautiful bit of language. As the gift of your number 189 episode on UFOs, a subject I have a great interest in, started to bring a smile on my face. I noticed the remark intimated towards the wonderful... But clearly mentally unwell Jenny, around her thinking she may be a bodhisattva, from my limited understanding, all beings sentient and perceived non-sentient, hold the wholesome nature of God, Buddha, Allah, Gaia, etc. Please offer your thoughts on this possibility. I do believe in panpsychism. I believe consciousness is in all things. I believe the potential for enlightenment is something that we all hold in us, and I believe in the place of enlightenment. We are all already there, and this is a secondary illusion, a little drop-down world, a mind shaft that we temporarily inhabit, although there is one exception <laughs> to that, Yonton Funstock. Yes, you guessed it. Jenny... Yeah, wait, Jenny, I'm not finished. Jenny May Finn... No, Jenny, I'm not finished. Jenny May Finn is not... <laughs> capable of human emotion she is if you were to look at to categorize her she would be in a category along with cupboards no and, what why you want to be with the rest of the people category <laughs> i don't think cupboards so. are very you know they've got a lot to them have they this is not a very nice cupboard this they can category. be opened and closed <laughs> All right, or they can have the door removed i'm talking about broken 
I'm talking about broken cupboards, Jen, in the perhaps you might find in a discount. Right, think of this. this you know is... the ones that click open, but then I did too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> think of this. You're driving along a freeway. You see a sign. Discounted cupboards. <laughs> Discounted broken cupboards. No. Available cheaply. Wait, you see a sign. Disgusting cupboards. Cupboards. <laughs> I'm not covered. <laughs> Cupboards filled with feces and effluvia, possibly their commodes. This is the category, Jen. No. Jen. Maybe is. you'd be a fighting cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, because of my extensive knowledge, because of my brilliant ability to hold together numerous taxonomies. Yeah. I mean, you heard the conversation I just had with um, Bradley Garrett. No, they didn't. No, I'm talking to you. Oh. PhD. I'm talking to you. <laughs> PhD, MA, bar, buzz, all of those letters. And he and I, we were kindred spirits. Whereas he told me that in a brief five-minute conversation with you, he was physically sick. What does that tell you, Jen? <laughs> okay, now here's... Uh, don't worry about answering cupboard. Above the Noise is a podcast that's also on this network, along with... Have you listened to Dave Chappelle's podcast yet? Amazing. Above the Noise is my meditation podcast. I've gone much more freestyle with it now. Anna Jen, yes. why are you smiling? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because I got a caterpillar cake? Bad cupboard. <laughs> I have a brand new meditation podcast called Above the Noise out now. I'm going to be releasing a new guided meditation every Wednesday. Go check it out. Let me know what you think. Rosetta Zybart said of the same podcast that I'm just discussing, it's brilliant. You should be meditating. If you're not meditating, start meditating. And if you are meditating, but you're not meditating with me, start meditating with me. Rosetta Zybart. I absolutely love listening to your podcast, Russell. I recently subscribed. I love the guided meditation. I felt lighter and energetic afterwards. The jungle and staircase, oh, I'd like to see this one, was easy to visually see. I'd like to listen to this one. I've had such a hard time shutting off my thoughts from thoughts during prayer. This worked for me the first time. I'm so excited to share it. Rosetta, thank you. You are the wind beneath my wings. You're the reason I get up in the morning and go to bed at night and pop to the lavvy in the meanwhile. Jenny May Finn, you are a cupboard. Tour, I'm doing live dates in the UK this autumn with my new stand-up show, 33. Tickets are available at russellbrand.com forward slash live dates forward slash. You have to do all these slashes, huh? Anyway, get tickets, yeah. come see me. And what about my Shakespeare show? I'm doing this streaming Shakespeare show, Jen. Are you going to watch it? Mm, you're not, are you? Is Gareth? Gareth's not going to be made to watch that. And in the Euros, he's got a lot on his plate. You're not watching the Euros. I am sometimes. What did you watch? I don't like Jack Grealish. Why not? Because everyone's just being all like, oh, Jack Grealish is so great, and then he doesn't do anything. <laughs> and then why you grow your hair long beforehand or cut it short? Don't have it as like this floppy thing. Jack Grealish, <laughs> Jen, is everything Didn't that's great. Didn't he pass great. a substitute on the sideline? That was an easy <laughs> mistake of a mecca. Poor Jack Grealish was distracted. <laughs> what I will say is he's got a lovely bum. What? And that ball for the goal against the Czech Republic was a terrific <laughs> the ball. <Czech> government. <laughs> <laughs> She's gone. She's gone up with, with broker. So <laughs> that's not your body language. Sit back in a chair casual like that. Like J.R. Ewing from Dallas. Sit forward. <laughs> God's sake, she's forgotten her own body language, crying out loud. All right, so there's that Shakespeare thing that Gareth won't be made to watch, but you should watch. 
And remember, Awakening with Russell Brand, all those lovely spiritual videos. And uh, that's that. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Ben, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, I appreciate that. Back at you. This is, a, I suppose, a peculiar time for us to be having a conversation, sort of culturally, geopolitically. You've probably got a, like, I, I watch a lot of your content, as, as I said, just in our brief chat before. And like, I'm sure you, even if you don't watch my content, and I would never assume, I imagine you sort of know who I am. So uh, how do you generally approach conversations with people where there is an assumption that we're on uh, across some real or imagined cultural line does it make any particular difference to you uh only in the sense that that i like to actually you know read about or or at least watch some of your stuff so that i know kind of how you approach interviews because because some people have a, a different approach and i've had experiences in the past that have uh, gone quite viral in which i had no idea what the interview was going to be and uh, then it goes sideways and so you always want to know kind of what you're walking into. But aside from that, no, I don't care at all. I speak with people who, who disagree with me on a regular basis. And frankly, I kind of find it more fun. It's, it's more interesting. Uh, I suppose you were referring um, with the uh, with the misstep with Andrew Neal. One of the things that, like, that I admire about you is your deafness and ability to handle confrontational conversations. Piers Morgan, another Englishman that I've seen you with. But it, yeah, it's amusing for English people to watch you with Andrew Neal because we're all thinking this dude is conservative, he's the editor of the Sunday Times. And the last thing, yeah, I'll be honest, dude, I had no <laughs> clue who he was, which is clearly obvious. And as I said, even before the interview came out, I was tweeting about how he kicked my ass. And, and that was because he did. I mean, I had no idea who he was. Uh, he had the, the interview was booked and it was booked by my publisher. And they were like, yeah, some guy on the BBC. I'm like, OK, I don't really watch the BBC. I'm from America. Mm, mm. And uh, and then he started questioning <laughs> me and I didn't know anything about his interview style, which, of course, is, is very aggressive. And he likes to play devil's mm. advocate. And, and so about 15 minutes into the interview, when he was just kind of reading my old tweets at me and I was like, I'm, I'm out. I, I still had no idea who he was. Then I looked him up and I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should have researched who he was. My mistake. Yeah, yeah, you'd probably get on all right with him. I've I've never met Andrew Neil, but like he's a serious broadcaster. Um, one of the areas where I reckon you and I perhaps have a lot in common, obviously, like you know, we've both got families. I feel your family's pretty young, and also you're you believe in God, and you're a pretty religious man, hey? Yeah. Uh, so we're Orthodox Jews. Um, my uh, my wife and I are, are both Orthodox. We raise our kids Orthodox. My, my family became Orthodox when I was maybe 11. We were always very interested in, in religious Judaism, but we became fully kosher, you know, eating kosher food and, and not driving on Sabbath and, and such uh, when I was about 11 years old. So I've been doing that since then. And I, I find, you know, great solace and and comfort and virtue in, in my religion. And uh, hopefully that, that comes out in how I raise my kids. How do you find solace? And aside from the observances and protocols around Orthodox Judaism, how does it uh, affect your outlook and interactions, particularly, I suppose, as a, a polemicist and a highly regarded and widely followed 
orator how does it uh, affect you there how the i suppose the intersection between your religious faith and your political views and your yeah uh, i mean in terms of sort of how it works in my personal life i mean i I would say that that religion provides me the opportunity to constantly be stepping outside of whatever is sort of the daily news cycle if religion is supposed to be eternal uh, then the idea that there is uh, an eternity in which this is just one moment and that you can step away for a moment from Twitter and the world won't end and things will, the world will continue to spin. And there are people before you who have known more than you. There are people who are after you who will know more than you, presumably. And there's a God above you who also uh, knows a lot more than any of those people is is definitely comforting Uh, for for a lot of Jews. And for me, particularly Sabbath is a big deal. Uh, Being able to physically turn off all electronic devices and not be connected at all to the news starting Friday night, ending Saturday night is a huge thing because I'm sure as you, virtually everybody feels now, you know, if I'm at dinner with, with my kids on a weeknight, the temptation to reach into your pocket and just start scrolling the news or checking your emails is really high. Well, on Sabbath, everything shuts off. And so that's it's kind of a wonderful way to reconnect with family. It's a way to reconnect with religion. You go to synagogue for a couple of hours. You spend some time contemplating your place in the universe and and contemplating what you think God requires of you. Uh, and, uh, and it really kind of regrounds you. In, in terms of the the what, what I think Judaism provides me in terms of values, uh, I, I'm a big believer that much of Enlightenment philosophy is rooted in, an uns, in, in certain unspoken assumptions about the world, about the nature of truth, about the nature of, of the human mind to understand broader objective truths, uh, and, and that those ideas spring from a Judeo-Christian worldview historically in the West. Wow. When you um, like, I can see this how the practical application of a Sabbath and the ability to cut off from tech and creating a period of contemplation, particularly now the tendrils of cultural life have bled into so much of domesticity. Like that, I can see that that would be a boon, a benefit. And in fact, in my own life, I'm continually having to create those kind of spaces. I essentially live a a secularized version of a religious life. I believe in God, but um, I'm a 12 step person. And that means that, you know, obviously I'm abstinent from drugs and alcohol, but also other sort of behavioral addictions. I have a lot of um, protocols around. And increasingly, I think that like that the, the tech experience has become so ubiquitous that it will, that everyone will have to have some kind of conscious plan around tech or risk having your consciousness kind of blended, even if that's not in a sort of a literal Elon Musk Neuralink way with kind of the incentives and imperatives of whoever is most dominant in that field. Is that something you feel? Uh, 100% also? agree. I totally agree with this. I mean, so much so that, you know, Twitter used to be on my phone. I removed Twitter from my phone because really for for people in public life, Twitter is sort of an ego machine because it's not just that you're tweeting things out into the ether. You're always constantly checking your messaging, your your incoming messages and, and how people are responding to you. And it creates a real sort of echo chamber of people who are talking about you all the time, which is the most unhealthy thing you can have, is you thinking you're the center of the universe is pretty much the worst thing as a human being that, that you can think. And so the, the internet tends to do that to you. Or alternatively, you felt frozen out of the center of the universe. And so you feel like you're on the periphery, which is bad in very, very different ways. Uh, and so kind of turning off and, and being with people is is a really important thing. And and you find that, you know, I, I've, I've said to my wife before, I'll come home on a, on a given day and she'll say, how was your day? And I'll say, well, I didn't trend on Twitter, so it was a good day. Uh, and I, I, increasingly, what I found is that even though I do trend on Twitter probably once every three weeks or so, it can still be a good day as soon as I turn off Twitter because there is this real world out there where nobody 
who is around you is spending their day on Twitter following you. So you're thinking about yourself a lot, but nobody else really is. And recognizing that not everybody is thinking about you, I think, is the, the sign of a healthy mind. Yeah, that's a kind of perhaps analogous to how culture can operate more broadly. This, it can, as you have said, it can make you feel included or even centrifugal, or it can make you feel banished and an outcast. You mentioned in like the in your uh, on the Sabbath, one of the things you contemplate what God wants from you. Um, would you share with me and us, of course, what kind of revelations? you get and i'm not trying to paint you as like a religious zealot or so anything. I'm, not, I'm not a person who thinks that that god speaks to me um mm. you know, i tend to be much more of a rationalist with regard to religion sort of a a, a, a Thomistic or maimonidean you know religious approach so everything would you explain those terms to me please? so so Thomistic meaning thomas aquinas uh, or maimonidean meaning uh, rambam in, in hebrew maimonides uh, so th these are two philosophers who attempt to essentially um merge a lot of Aristotelian ideas about how the world works with religious thoughts. So the idea is there's a basic logic to the universe that you don't see God in miracles as much as you see God in the everyday workings of, of nature uh, and, the, and the way that the world works around you. And that there are certain laws of, of how to live a healthy life that can be discerned from the natural world around you. This is the idea of natural law uh, as, as sort of recapitulated. Uh, after the, historically speaking, natural law uh, was an idea that, that was very prevalent uh, in ancient Greece, Aristotle talks about this, and then that sort of philosophy disappeared for a long time, and it was rediscovered around the year 1000. Uh, and so that kind of created this religious reawakening because the Christian world started to integrate that via Thomas Aquinas. The Jewish world started to do that via Maimonides. The Islamic world even actually at that time started to do that via people like Al-Farabi. Uh, and then the, the idea was, how can you balance reason and revelation? And what Maimonides and, and Aquinas basically said is that the way that you balance those things is by suggesting that there are rational reasons for the commandments that are given via revelation, for example. So when I'm reading the Bible every, every Saturday, what I'm searching for is ancient wisdom that applies to me and that has roots in, in deeper truths. Because one of the things that, that I believe, and this goes to some of my political conservatism as well, but certainly my, my sort of religious conservatism, one of the things that I believe is if things have stuck around for several thousand years, not always, but very often, there's a good reason they've stuck around for several thousand years. Uh, there's, a, there's a famous uh, G.K. Chesterton quote that I think really sums this up, where he, he's, I'll paraphrase it because I'm not going to quote it properly, but the, the basic idea is that the difference between somebody who is conservative in orientation versus somebody who is not is somebody who's conservative in orientation. He walks across a field, he sees a wall in the middle of the field, and he can't understand why there's a wall in the middle of the field. And his first move is to think, okay, why is the wall there? Who built this wall? Was it built there for any good purpose? Whereas if you're not of conservative orientation, very often you look at the wall, you see that it's not there for any good reason that you can see, and you immediately dismantle the wall. And it's only later you find out that maybe the wall needed to be there, or maybe we needed to build the wall in a different place. Um, but that, that's sort of my view on, on biblical revelation, is you look there for eternal human truths, uh, and then you attempt to use you know, human logic to suss that out. Because if, if God you know, is, is giving any sort of revelation to humanity, or if God is attempting to speak to humanity through the Bible— He's speaking in language that we can understand. He understands we're going to apply our own reason that he gave us uh, to the words of the Bible. Do you find it applicable in your actual daily life, though? I can see that you have a, a, a deep and broad understanding of theological principles from a variety of disciplines. But in this period of contemplation of 24 hours, like, do you ever have cause to think... Am I 
Ben Shapiro on the right path as a father and as a professional man and like and and do you ever feel an intimate and meaningful connection you're doing a really good job in my view of um, navigating that difficult territory that exists in mysticism you know which I guess we would have to say religion could be referred to as broadly and and these principles that tether it to rationalism so that we can't just dismiss mysticism and the results of I'm sure that the results of uh, diminishing the role of religion in cultural life is probably something where you and I would have a lot of common ground. The, the creation of nihilism, materialism, commodification, I bet that we agree on loads of stuff there. I, I, I wonder, though, how your personal ethics uh, are, are impacted like uh, can you think of an example of how you would m have have moderated your own behavior as a result of something that's touched you biblically so i mean I, I i think that religion especially if you grow up with it is something that sort of exists at the at the baseline of the iceberg that is your life you're living most of your life at the top of the iceberg but most of your values live underneath the water and so you don't really examine them all that often um mm -hmm. I, I think that you know in in my daily practice you're supposed to pray three times daily as a Jew. You pray in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Uh, I'll admit I am not very good at prayer. Uh, I tend to be very impatient, and, uh, and I tend to kind of rush through prayers more often than I should, for sure. Um, but you're, the, the goal is that you're going to take out in the mornings 25 minutes, uh, in, and then in the afternoons and the evenings, maybe 10 minutes apiece, to actually sit there and think about your life and try and reevaluate you know, the day, what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right. Uh, and you know, as far as raising my kids, that I do end up thinking about a lot because kids, as, as you know, you know, ask you all sorts of difficult questions that sort of force you to rethink a lot of the things that, that you've thought about. And so I've got a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old. And so my seven-year-old and five-year-old that are at the ages where they start to ask really kind of interesting theological questions, right? They're starting to ask things like, what happens after you die? And, and, and in really kind of interesting and fun ways. Right? so my five-year-old son turned to my wife and said the other day, and he said, so after you die, what happens to you? And she said, or said, well, you don't have a body anymore. You're, you're kind of liberated from your body. And she, he said, what did that mean? Do you fly around? And she, she said, no, you don't really fly around. You know, it's, it's not like you have wings or something. He said, okay, so what, what exactly does that mean? And trying to, to boil down sort of the idea of reunification with a higher being to a five-year-old makes for a really interesting conversation. Trying to explain what, is, what makes you you. Uh, is is really interesting and, and forces you to to think about it more deeply. And sometimes you don't have all the answers. And, and there, I think that the best thing that you can do, and this is true in, in most versions of, of everything, and this is a lesson where when I fail to learn it, you get smacked by life, uh, is acknowledging when you don't know something. I mean, that to go back to the BBC interview, if I don't know something, I would be better off just saying, I, I really don't know who you are and I don't know much about this interview rather than trying to you know, kind of bull my way through it. Uh, and, and the same thing is true in, in a wide variety of areas in life. Uh, every time you get arrogant and you think that you know something, Life is going to punish you for that. Yes, I found this to be true. Um, like, yeah, see, I can see how like, quickly in the conversation with the kids, you can end up dealing with things like essence, the nature of consciousness. I was trying to think how I would handle that. My children are uh, three and five. Uh, with, she's going to be five in a, a little while. And um, yeah, already it's like it's it's pretty easy to drop into the lower part of that iceberg and to see what underwrites the the, the limited bandwidth of ordinary egoic everyday consciousness. You know, you, you can be brought there quite quickly, quite swiftly by a child's interrogation. For sure. And, the, and my son asked, you know, so what makes he got into, you know, so what what am I right? If I'm not my body, and I said, well, you know. Uh, you know, if, if God forbid you were to lose a hand, you'd still be you, right? He said, yeah. I said, and if you were to lose a foot, you'd still be you. So, so your body really isn't you in terms of your soul, right? There, there's, a, there's a part of you that is a, a conscious ability to choose. 
that is a, uh, I didn't use exactly those words because he's five, um, but you, you have the ability to, to do the right thing or do the wrong thing. And that part of you is really not connected to your body. That's, there, there's something special about you that God implanted in you and that you'll return to God after you die. And this he, this he sort of understood. Um, but it's, it's not that, uh, it's not a sad, speaking about death to children is always a, a really, you don't want to give them nightmares. And at the same time, they're asking very deep and abiding questions that require answers. <laughs> yeah, I approach it in the same way. I'm plain about the idea of death, of finality, and I've tried not to make it, uh, you know, gory or gruesome or overly sentimentalize it. But we found like a dead mole in the garden and my daughter was just so fascinated with it. We, we gave it a burial, but she, I'm afraid to admit exhumed that mole a further three times <laughs> to re-engage with the corpse with the mole less and less cute on <laughs> each subsequent visit you know and like but i don't want to i don't want her to be sort of squeamish about life hey don't you find uh, uh, all your children boys or male i know so I've, I, it grows it goes uh, girl boy girl do you find like anything in the kind of stuff that i've watched you analyze and critique around uh, the culture wars where you feel like uh, empowerment of females and like like for example myself right like sometimes when i sense say i watch a movie and i see even a kind of a trivial joke about boys saying something like oh girls they're rubbish and i'm watching that with my kids i feel like furious <laughs> like how dare you how dare you say that i don't want that going into my daughter right so even though there are many things that you have said that I would agree with on lots and lots of subjects. That's one of the reasons that I want to talk to you. One of the, one of the areas where I thought that, that would be interesting for us to discuss is the, do you not sometimes find things that are being talked about by e.g. trans community, feminist community that you think have value and worth when it comes to individuals being uh what i want to say sort of acknowledged heard honored perhaps even so the the idea that that you should be you know acknowledged for your feelings particularly depends on whether i think that the feelings are rooted in something good or something bad right your children are constantly doing things that you don't want them to do and you're constantly telling them not to do them right your job as a parent is to help guide them through the world uh, in in terms of valuable things that feminism has done for for girls and women i mean i'm fully cognizant of that my wife as I've said many times, the doctor, my, when I was growing up, my mom worked and my dad stayed home. Uh, my daughter happens to be incredibly bright, and I hope that she picks the career that she wants and is able to do exactly what she wants. And we try to foster that in, in everything that she does, you know, that anything uh, that, a, and anything that a, a boy can do in terms of picking a career, you can do, although she is fully aware that, uh, you know, that, that typically there are certain things physically that where women are different than men, right? Girls have babies and boys don't have babies and men pick up heavy objects and, and are dumb. Uh, this is what she knows about boys. Um, so this is, you know, which, which yeah, again, is not a bad thing for her to, a bad thing for her to know. Um, but the idea that the women are, are not relegated to, to, you know, their biology alone in terms of what, what they can do for a career, of course, I, I think is, is very much true. And I have no objection to that at all. What I do have objection to is the idea that there are no fundamental differences between men and women. That there is no difference that, that can be named uh, between a boy and a girl that I would, for example, have to not be able to say I have a girl, a boy, a girl. I'd have to say I have children of unspecified gender until they reach the age at which they pick their gender, which theoretically could change all the way until the time they become a dead mole. Uh, you know, th there I, I have serious objections and I'm not going to either confuse my kids with that notion or promulgate that falsity to them. And I think that it's important to, to reinstill certain realities about their biology and 
and note that you are my, to my son that he is a boy and to my daughter that she is a girl. And if she wants to be a tomboy and be a girl, that's fine. And if my son, you know, is a little bit more effeminate and he's a boy, he's still a boy. You know, there, there are certainly characteristics that where, where boys can, you know, have non-traditional male interests and and that's fine. And girls can have non-traditional female interests and, and that's fine too. I don't have any problem with that. Where I draw the line is where people start to suggest there are no fundamental differences between boys and girls, which if you have boys and girls as children, you know is not true. Or if you live in the world and have ever met either a man or a woman, seem fundamentally untrue. Do you think that not dealing with, we're not talking about individuals here. I'm talking about the way that the media is mobilized around this issue, these issues. Do you think that there is something fundamentally disingenuous? Do you think that they have an agenda or objectives beyond the protection of people's rights to express themselves however they want to, to identify however they want to, to feel that they are accepted by a culture, all of which to me seem like perfectly reasonable objectives for any individual. Do you feel that that there are secondary or ulterior uh, agenda that are being pursued culturally that cause you some kind of disease other than a kind of the sort of what you've just asserted ideologically about you know your interpretation understanding of what you would just say is absolute biology yeah so i mean there are a few things so one is there there's a great book called the rise and triumph of the modern self by carl truman that, that i think is well worth reading on this particular subject there's been a redefinition. It really doesn't start with transgenderism or, or even the modern era. A redefinition of what it means to be an individual and where you get your individuality, what, what makes you you, right? What, what, what is your identity about? For most of human history, your identity was about you living within the, within the boundaries of a particular community. How you interacted with the world was part of what shaped your identity. How you interacted with your community was part of how you shaped your identity. If you read Aristotle, it's all about producing good citizens in the polis, for example. Or if you read the Founding Fathers, they're talking about how to live within your community and the importance of communal bonds. And as communal bonds have sort of broken down, and I think that this relationship is sort of symbiotic, as, as our version of what identity is has changed, people have stopped associating what I am with what society expects of me. What are the rules of society and how do I interact with those rules of society? And instead, they've said, I am what I feel, right? My authenticity is key. Authenticity is the thing that matters the most. It doesn't matter whether there's no good or there's no bad. There's just authenticity. And the rules of the road have to be changed around me in order to foster my own sense of authenticity, which means everybody else has to change their behavior because I feel a particular way. Well, that to me is not a way to build a society. I'm not sure that you can build a society in which everyone's individual identity is rooted in forcing everybody else to change their ideas about the world and, and how they wish to address the world. That doesn't seem like a, a smart way to do it. If you can't have any sort of at all mutually agreed rules of the road, uh, other than presumably just saying yes to everything, it's going to be very difficult to build a society uh, around anything like that. I mean, that's on a very abstract level. On a more practical level, one of the things that you've seen in the United States, for example, is an attempt to tell religious Americans that if they don't raise their children with particular values, then they're doing abuse to their children and that presumably the state should step in. Uh, you've seen bakers who have been sued for saying, I don't wish to participate in this particular activity. Right now, I'm, I'm very libertarian when it comes to this stuff. I feel that, that freedom includes freedom of association, and freedom of association means that people I don't like can not associate with me. That, that is their choice. I, I'm fully libertarian on this to the point where if somebody wants to not have Jews in their business, I think they're a bad person. 
But I think that they should be free to do that because, frankly, I don't want any overarching authority telling people who they must and can uh, must and can associate with. That seems to me more dangerous. Um, but there, there is an outright attempt to change the nature of language, to, to make it so that we can't agree on even simple terminology, to make language entirely subjective, which makes it very difficult to talk to one another, to turn every political problem into, into an identity problem. So we instead of having a discussion about for example, what is the proper treatment for gender dysphoria? Instead, it turns into you're attacking my identity if you disagree with me about the proper treatment for gender dysphoria. Well, what if I'm just arguing about what's the proper treatment for gender dysphoria based on the data? Or what if I'm just discussing the differences biologically between males and females? That's not an attack on your identity. But the conflation of everything that I believe and everything that I feel internally on a subjective level with who I am uh, is uh, is a uh, very, it's very difficult to see how you reach common ground there. You need to be at least able to put yourself out of the conversation enough to discuss things in a, in a mutual space where the terminology is, is agreed upon. When you discuss the, um, your own certainty around your Judaism and orthodoxy um, and, your, um, and then s sort of outline your critique of s some of these s somewhat modern cultural phenomena, but perhaps abiding phenomena more broadly, even if the kind of emphasis and uh, wasn't, the discourse wasn't granted. Do you feel perhaps that there are fissures appearing culturally, culturally that can't ever really be abridged and that possibly the best kind of solution might be that a kind of a confederacy of like, well, people just live how you want to live, just live how you want to live and allow other people to live how they want to live, which I can see that within somewhat within the remit of libertarianism. Yeah, I mean, I've said for a long time that I think that that this is the direction in which we're moving. The question is, are we going to share a, a culture or not? Because that libertarianism only lasts as long as nobody grabs the gun at the top of the of the food chain, right? I mean, whoever whoever controls the gun controls the policy, unfortunately. And and when I say the gun, I just mean the government, because the government to me is just a giant machine for compulsion. That's in essence what the government is designed to do. Every law at the very end of the road is backed by some guy coming to your door with a gun and putting you in jail if you don't obey the law. So it, it depends on on whether there can be a common agreement to leave people alone. And I think that that agreement is is pretty much what is missing right now. If, if you are an adult and you choose to live however you want to live and you're not bothering me, I may disagree with what you do. I may think that what you're doing is religiously sinful. I may think that on a non-religious level, you are living a dissolute life and that you could be doing better with your life. But I also understand that you're an adult and you have the capacity to, to build your own life. If you can't understand the same about me, then we've got a problem because then we don't have a shared space at all. Then it's just a matter of who wins, right? Then it's not a matter of we can have an agreement to leave each other alone, which Frankly, I, my ideal life is just to be left alone. This seems great to me. Um, but if there can't be that sort of fundamental agreement, then there will just be this continuing war of all against all. And then the question just becomes who wins that war. Because I don't think that war can be won either, Ben. I've been thinking about it a lot, man. And like I sort of, you know, like I when I think about conservatism, republicanism, sort of like the you know enlightenment informed uh, type of politics that led to the foundation of your country. Um, my the challenge I have with it, sort of, in some ways, sounds oddly 
comparable to some of the uh, criticisms you've offered about other um, enclaves of culture and identity is that, that for me it seems that conservatism becomes too easily alloyed with concentration of power it facilitates and expedites the uh, the progress of powerful interests and institutions it leads to I- I- inaccessible and fortified power centers uh, for me more in the financial and corporate world rather than the sort of the world of state and government not that I'm a big state person either by the way so I've often like the same way I guess you're probably called a fascist and with the obvious ironies um, you know acknowledged in re- referring to you with that loaded word um, I'm kind of something called a communist and I think well I don't believe that there should be centralized state power at all that's something I really strongly disavow if anything I'm trying to find some fusion between anarchism in a literal sense i.e. sort of small collectives that are democratically run and libertarianism where the rights of the individual are honored and it seems to me that both of those ideas would require hmm, i mean who knows how we get to this utopia ben but in but even in raising it it seems to me that isn't it worth at least addressing the flaws within the kind of conservatism for which you are such an outspoken and admired uh as uh, an orator like for example the way that you support like you must surely have had an uneasy relationship with trump because of the kind of uh, perhaps the ethical and moral concerns around trump but because he was like the republican guy you know and i find him like a fascinating figure and i felt like a lot of the critiques and attacks on trump were revealing about the the real conservatism being within the liberal neoliberal domain now that neoliberalism abandoned its commitment to working class people of any colour in favour of uh, cultural politics that, uh, which I've had explained to me has no real impact on true power centres creates division and conflict on both sides and enables the powerful to continue to p- pursue their interests I suppose amidst this storm of language Ben what I'm saying is what kind of uh, what kind of doubts and concerns do you have about conservatism and republicanism where do you see there being room for change uh, from what you would refer to mostly derisorily on your show as the left is can you give me some stuff out of that hurricane I think that one of the big problems with conservatism is that conservatism in, in sort of the traditional American sense, which looks more like classical liberalism in the European sense, uh, is it, it's, it's rooted in a certain fundamental assumption about the values that are going to be held by the community. And if those values fall away, then the, then the institutions themselves are not going to be enough to protect the citizenry, right? This is something that John Adams noted very early on. He said that the Constitution of the United States was made only for a moral and religious people. If, if, if the people became no longer moral or religious, then they would move right through the boundaries of the Constitution like a whale would through a net. Right. So there, there are certain unspoken assumptions about the nature of community life. And if you read de Tocqueville very early on, he talks about how in the United States, people are constantly forming social organizations, associations. They're going to church a lot. They're interacting with each other a lot. They're building communities, strong communities with real social fabric. And that replaces the sort of government compulsion that otherwise you would need in order to provide for law and order. Right? There's a lot of social pressure not to break the law. There's a lot of social pressure not to be rude or impolite. There's a lot of social pressure to do all of these things. And if people stop acting that way, then government compulsion is suddenly looking a lot more attractive because as things disintegrate, people want the government to do all the things that society used to do and government starts to fill that gap. So that's been a problem with conservatism. And and you're seeing that uh, kind of breakdown within conservatism, even with this sort of debate that's happening right now between a sort of libertarian-ish conservative wing and and a more 
uh, interventionist conservative wing, people who think that the government actually should replace a lot of those social institutions in cramming down particular social values, attempting to restore social fabric from the top down, which I frankly don't think uh, is, is possible. Now, when you talk about centralization of power in institutions, Russell, I, I, I kind of want to know how the power was, was centralized and what the power is being used to do. So whenever I hear centralized power, it sort of depends to me on what is being traded away in return for the centralized power. So when I look at government, I see centralized power in government. I understand that you're trading away your rights to the government, presumably in exchange for a certain level of protection. And I have serious objections to that because those rights belong to me. They are inalienable under our declaration. Mm. Uh, and I think according to natural rights theory. So government scares me. When it comes to corporations, the question is, how are they gaining that power? So if a corporation got really big because the corporation has a hand-in-glove relationship with the government and the government is ba- there's regulatory capture, the government is creating regulations specifically to quash the competitors of this particular giant corporation, or the corporation is working in cahoots with the government to write the rules in such a way that it makes it pretty much unpalatable for anybody to get into that business. That, to me, is deeply scary, right? When the Occupy Wall Street movement started in the United States, my big problem with the Occupy Wall Street movement is I wasn't sure why they were occupying Wall Street as opposed to occupying D.C., considering that D.C. has the power of the purse and the power of the gun. Wall Street is just a bunch of of businesses. So that's that's one arena of, of centralized power. The other arena of centralized power is just businesses getting bigger because they are good at what they do. And I don't have a problem with businesses getting bigger because they are good at what they do. Or, or operating in a free market space in order to negotiate, for example, with labor. Nor, by the way, do I have a problem with private labor organizing in opposition to, to businesses so long as they're not kneecapping people who wish to work for a lower wage. My, my problem with centralized power when it comes to corporate world is that centralized power in the corporate world very often involves hand-in-glove relationships with the compulsory power of the government enshrining these corporations permanently at the top of the hierarchy. And that I have a real problem with. Perhaps it's inevitable that at the elite levels, these kind of relationships are abiding, that there is a, uh, that you cannot attain that degree of influence. And for the, a definition of power, a very simple one I heard is the ability to reward people who align with your interests and punish people who do not. And, and on that basis, we can see that there are certainly powerful emergent forces in the world of tech that are centralized, that are able to, to a degree, it seems at least, moderate themselves, decide who can use their platforms in what way. Um, but the reason, one of the, the sort of real fundamental and, gosh, uh, so rudimentary, it's almost childlike uh, uh, um, queries that I have about the the way that you um, conduct your, your channel and is that when you refer to the, the left as kind of... Um, you know, Marxist and extreme leftist, I feel like, well, they don't seem like they're on the left at all, as ever as I've understood the left, i.e. the left about redistribution of resources, the empowerment of ordinary people, in the case, obviously, of your country, ordinary Americans of all colors and creeds, having the ability to have power in their own lives, free from cultural or political or economical or economic imposition this this for me is the 
role of a true opposition party, however you want to colour it. And one of the other issues I wanted to bring to you is it seems to me that there is now a kind of dissipation of these systems of categorization within the Republicans. You said there's that libertarian sort of post Tea Party type of Republicanism, post Trump. Um, well, God knows what it looks like now, and that you know with the sort of traditional sort of Christian right that it, it exists loosely corralled into that, and with the left. I, my biggest uh, sort of concern about leftist politics is that there is no agenda to reorganize society beyond certain cultural inflections, which you know you spend a lot of your time critiquing and are doubtlessly ha- having a big impact. But my my problem with that is it's not dealing with. For example, what happened post-2008, the amount of poverty, the amount of suffering, the amount of loss, there's no one in like Joe Biden's government saying, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to have ordinary Americans comfortable in their own homes, own their own homes, if that's the model that you want to go with, uh, work with dignity, if that's the model you want to go? That doesn't seem to be on the agenda. And so I wouldn't really call that left wing in any sort of Marxist or economic sense at all. Well, I, I think that here we have to distinguish goals from means. So they're, they're the, the goals of having more people living in their own home or the goal of having more people have work. Right? There are a couple of different approaches to that. I think that we all hopefully share that goal. Uh, the question is the approaches. And there is sort of a, a broadly left wing approach, which is the government takes capital. The government takes that that money from people who have earned it or invested it and takes it and then uses it to buy people homes or subsidize loans or hire people for jobs. That's sort of the, the left-wing top-down approach. Uh, and then there is the more conservative approach traditionally, which is you basically allow the free market to work and then you incentivize people to make good decisions that allow them to get out of poverty more permanently. In other words, signing people a check is actually not a way of getting them out of poverty. It's a way of, of temporarily relieving poverty, but does not change any of the incentive structures that allow people to truly escape poverty in, in the long term. Those are two different approaches. Uh, I, I would say that, that on the show, when I speak about the left, one distinction that I, that I make very frequently on the show are between people who I, I say are, of the, uh, are, are leftists and people who I say are liberals. People who I say are liberals are people who believe in bigger government and higher taxes and maybe nationalized healthcare, but who don't actually wish to shut down the debate and, and treat dissent as though it's a, a criminal act. And then there are people who are really hardcore on the left who wish to engage in those sorts of activities. So I try to make that distinction as, as much as possible um, because I do think that the, the great danger, and we may be jumping out ahead of, of something else we're going to talk about, but I think one of the big dangers right now is that oh, as the Overton window shuts, it's very difficult to have honest conversations about any of these topics without somebody jumping out of the woodwork and uh, calling you uh, a name, and then the debate shuts down. And if you even have this conversation, then you're going to get hit. I'm sure that, Russell, after we have this conversation, you're going to get hit with a wave of why would you even talk to that person, for example. And that sort of stuff happens fairly routinely. Uh, in fact, when I invite people on my show who disagree, I say to them beforehand, <laughs> just recognize you're going to get a lot of texts from, from your friends being very angry that, that you took me up on that. But as far as sort of the, the broader rubric of trying to make life better for people, there are a bunch of different approaches to how you make life better for people. Uh, and I tend to take the approach that suggests that when you treat people as responsible individuals, capable of making decisions that better their lives, and you put the responsibility with the individual, with adult individuals to do that, that you are better off than if you treat them as basically just a pocket being requiring being, being filled. And that's obviously not talking about people who have some sort of serious disability or are literally unable to take care of themselves. 
I feel that both of those approaches have problems. And in a sense, this is where I wonder if the spiritual values that we were talking about a little, if not in particular detail with regard to their uh, the, the specificity of those values, but like for me, compassion, kindness, love, and and you know when we touched upon the idea of like contemplation of how god would have us be for me in a sense there is in the kind of sort of social darwinism that underwrites a lot of free market ideology natural competition services the market will look after itself but like those kind of ideas for me are sort of like a, the, a, an aspect of of like i don't know rationalism say should we call it that i'm not particularly fond of because it seems to me that it has unleashed a set of processes that are leading to individualism commodification uh, a kind of a, a, a loss of meaning a loss of purpose and a, a side effect a consequence of that I, I would believe is is yes economic poverty but a kind of a deeper poverty still a poverty of meaning I don't think capitalism in alliance with conservatism can provide that kind of meaning. I sometimes query, Ben, whether even secularism can fulfill that role. So when I am mentioning perhaps glibly in this context, given the breadth of your knowledge, when I talk about centralization, whether it's at a state level or an economic level, these sort of juggernauts of power with incredible influence that can shape and make the world to their convenience, I feel that these forces are largely in both cases whether you you know like it's sort of like neoliberal or leftist statist kind of centralized redistribution models that i don't ever see as being particularly effective and more focused on the kind of censorship and stuff that we've talked about even though i'm sympathetic in a way that perhaps that you are less inclined to be to the kind of you know that that stuff about feelings i was like yeah i kind of care about people's feelings i guess you know and we can get into that a little bit if you want to but more what i'm sort of interested in is how can we here now create a, a kingdom that is a reflection of whether you believe in God or not, the kind of values that God is undergirded by, if, you, if one could ever come to such a conclusion, but perhaps in sort of terms of Sesame Street ethics, we could talk about love, oneness, kindness, allowing people to be who they are. And I don't see how free market capitalism is heading in that direction. Now, I'm not talking about you or like a self-made man building a, a what looks like an enviable media empire. I'm talking talking about uh, uh, out of control power and f financial power, particularly the type that you alluded to and, and uh, that is, you know, hand in glove with like lack of government regulation. So do, don't you agree with me, Ben, that neither of these options are in alignment with our higher principles? Uh, you know, you and I as both as men who like self-declared men of God. And and therefore, why are you out to bat so vociferously for one of those sides? Right. So I, I think that there, I have a couple of, of points to make here. One, one, I bet you do. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one is that um, I, I think that frankly, look if if you're looking for love in economics, you're looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh, what, what I mean by that is that economics is is designed to generate wealth and innovation. Right. The best economic systems are the ones that generate presumably the most wealth and the highest level of growth for populations broadly distributed. And, and certainly capitalism has done the job there. If you look at the, the global GDP or the GDP of any individual nation since 1800, it has risen exponentially with the increase of free trade and private property rights and free markets. And before then, the, the level of subsistence was extraordinarily 
high, the, the, in terms of living at subsistence level, uh, life expectancy was extraordinarily low. In Europe, it was still below the age of 40 was the average life expectancy in the year 1800. Now, everybody who's growing up in the West can expect to live 80 years in a level of wealth, even at the poverty line. That would be unimaginable to people who are middle class or even upper class in, say, 1900, right? We have devices available at our fingertips, even if you're very poor in, the most, in Western societies. That would boggle the mind of somebody living in 1900. Like the richest guy in 1900 maybe had a couple of telephones. The guy now has, has more computing power in the palm of his hand being on welfare than NASA had putting a man on the moon. Right? That's the power of, of economics and the power of, of capitalism. But if you're looking for meaning in economics, uh, I, I think that you're right to say that, that you can't find deeper meaning in, in economics. I, I will say that I think that if you read Adam Smith, and I don't mean just the wealth of nations, which, which a lot of people have referred to, I mean the theory of moral sentiments. He fully acknowledges that there has to be a moral underpinning to a recognition of individual human striving and individual human ability. So take it from, from this perspective. I, I know that, this is, by the way, there's a very rich debate, obviously, as you know, in, inside the religious community. If you read the, the writings of Francis right now versus the writings of Benedict, they're very different on economics, obviously, or, or certainly versus uh, John Paul II. So, you know, the, the, my view of this is that when in Genesis, God says that human beings are created in his image uh, and that when God suggests that we have the individual power to choose, as he suggests to Cain at the very beginning of Genesis, this is foisting responsibility on individuals. And you have power over your own life. You have power over your own labor. Now, if there's somebody who's oppressing you, that's a different story, right? If there's somebody who's literally oppressing you, then it is the job of government and others to step in and stop that person from oppressing you. But the idea that it is the government's job to provide some sort of utopian vision on earth uh, or that forced redistribution is the way to do that seems to me to, to really be a moral problem that, that infringes fundamentally on your ability to choose, infringes on your, infringes on your creative abilities. Uh, and so the, the argument for free markets for me, I don't, you know, capitalism is a term that, that frankly was, was coined by, by Marx to a certain extent, but the, the free market idea, which is really that you own your own labor and that you are able to alienate that labor, you're able to sell it, you are able to work with it and then use the products of that labor to buy other things. That comes down to fundamental human dignity in, in a way as well. And so my ideal is that everybody is able to own their own labor and alienate that labor as they see fit and that they find meaning in the social connections that they make with others and in the way that they bring up their family. But I don't think that you can solve a, a spiritual problem with an economic answer is, I think, what I would say here. And, and the reason I say that is because we are richer than any time in human history. And yet, as you are pointing out, a lot of people feel empty. A lot of people feel lack of meaning in their lives. A lot of people feel alienated from the culture. It would be very difficult to take a person from 2021, plunk them down in 1850 and say, are you better off materially in 1850 than you are in 2021? No one would take that trade. But the uh, forget about all of the other, you know, various social issues ranging from race to, to sex in 1850. I'm just talking about just the pure material lifestyle. I think that it's important to recognize what economics can do and what economics can't. And when we think that economics can fill hearts as opposed to filling pockets, I think that we start to make a, a rather large scale mistake. If it is inhibited in the ways that you have outlined in its capacity to provide meaning, it ought that, in my view, be relegated to a less potent social role rather than occupying, as it does at the moment, the pinnacle, i.e. even the metrics, Ben, that you espouse, GDP, for example, are determined in accordance with the ideals of this particular, not necessarily science, but this set of 
ideals and, and rules and principles. I'm not suggesting that there could ever be one centralised body, although religiously, of course, you believe that there could be, and indeed is, that provides you with all of your meaning and your sort of personal and familial and professional regulatory systems. And, you know, in your religious life, you believe that there is and I feel like I suppose in another way I do but where perhaps we see things distinctly is I feel that there is a kind of an obligation to promote these values to the forefront of our lives to, to the point where these again these sort of somewhat gooey terms like compassion and kindness are prized above economic growth and GDP and like the, the fact that these sort of regulatory measures are the sort of the, the dominant means for evaluating our culture I think that give us a set of biases that I think might be very very difficult to overthrow and I, I feel that by having like the false markers of scientific technolo technological and economic growth as the determinants for progress we fall into a trap that n neglects Air, great vast territories of unimagined endeavor that could alter the human experience. I feel that what I have been is a kind of deep optimism that we can create different worlds and part of that might be finding ways to curtail the potency of the, some of the Goliaths of the tech, economic and even older energy based sort of uh, you know behemoths of economics and um, also, though, I, I acknowledge and the many, many um, areas where we have to l look at and and recognise that you know um, no one wants to revisit the s s failings of twentieth century uh, like you know, communism, fascism, all of those dead late industrialist ideas uh, shouldn't be revived, can't be revived, but. I feel that there is something within us and I feel that it lies within the currently in the domain of the religion and of religion and it needs to be released from there and allowed to become a, a, a dominant cultural force, uh, not an oppressive one, but a, a, a things that I think is so fun about this is that we're kind of going deeper and deeper uh, under the waterline. And I think that's that's great, because I think that one of the things that you just said there uh, is, is something where we do sort of disagree about the, the fundamental nature of optimism with regard to human capacity. So I have great optimism with regard to human capacity in terms of technological innovation, right? We've proved very adaptable as a species. We are very good at creating new products and services that, that make things easier for us, clearly. Uh, where, I, where I have a lot less faith in humanity is in moral innovation. I think that in moral innovation, the history of the 20th century shows that progress very often is, is regress to barbarism. Uh, and so we have to be very careful with, with unifying power with, I mean, I, I'm not a theocrat in any way, right? I don't wish to rule. I don't wish my religion to rule everybody else. I think we have to be very careful about unifying power with a sense of, of moral certitude uh, with regard to, you know, sort of the the utopian impulse. I'm, I'm very scared of the utopian impulse. I think the utopian impulse is incredibly dangerous. Uh, and I, I don't have a lot of faith that human beings have the capacity to completely rework society in lines that, that don't, along lines that, that historically have never emerged uh, in, in humankind before. I think human beings are as was written in the Federalist Papers, capable of being angels and capable of being devils. But I, I think that we're somewhere in between. And I, I don't think that you know, a, a group of human beings creating new models of, of how to live uh, is probably going to be the solution to what is, in essence, fundamental human failings that are universal and eternal to, to human beings. And that's why, to me, the spiritual side of compassion, for example, to me, that's carried out by whenever I hire somebody, 
is a good to go back to Maimonides, who again is one of my ideological mentors. Uh, Maimonides says that the highest form of charity is hiring somebody. And he says the lowest form of charity is signing somebody a check, basically. But the highest form of charity is hiring somebody. And then it goes to anonymous check writing. And then it goes to, you put your name on the check. And then it's, yeah, there's like eight levels of charity. But compassion uh, is, is something that I don't look to, the, to, to, to powers at large for. Compassion is something that I try to enact in my daily life by giving charity and by giving people jobs and by trying to help them out and by trying to make the, the immediate community around me better. Uh, when I think people you know, are led astray is when they think that their feeling of compassion extended over the broad range of humanity means that they are allowed to exercise unprecedented levels of control. And that, that gets into scary territory. That control, I think, ends up being exerted anyway through the economic means that we've sort of touched upon. And whilst um, moral uh, innovation might be a, a bold territory to contemplate, moral application, I think, is not one that is beyond us. I feel that perhaps what we do is create cultural contexts. Take, for example, like an area where I'm sure you and I would be in agreement that if you're bombarded with lascivious imagery, if you're continually invited to compare yourself to other people, if you're continually told that you can fulfill yourself through the pursuit of uh, economic and individualistic goals, you will find fulfillment. That is going to create a cultural context where those ideas thrive. There's, you know, people aren't advertising products because it does doesn't work they're advertising it because these ideas spread and embed now i feel that what may have happened to us and like again ben when we're talking about sort of history we're only talking about like sort of post agriculture while well, i recognize 10,000 like 10,000 years is not a small change you know human beings have been around for a lot longer than that living in very very different societies i'm not as kind of a rousseauian hey let's all go live in the forest and kiss and cuddle and do whatever the hell else they were doing in those forests but but I do believe that if we were to somehow honour and align with as arcane principles that we might discover that we, you know, we to take a, an, an insultingly simplistic analogy when dealing with a man of your obvious intelligence, the way that sugar and fat impacts us because of the way we've evolved might be taking place on the level of memetic information. We're taking on board data. We're living in concentrated situations. We are stimulating, you know, back to those basics, greed, lust, envy, jealousy. We're, you know, like there is, the, there is a hormonal ecology, a biochemical world within us that is being I think manipulated and controlled by cultural forces that are preventing us from applying morality let alone um, you know innovating in, in the moral sphere not, I actually not... agree with a lot of what you're saying and, and to me the balance that has to be drawn is how much power do you use in order to prevent that sort of manipulation if the manipulation is a consensual manipulation, right? We're not talking about somebody who's literally forcing you to do something at the point of a gun or bayonet. We're talking about somebody's advertising to you a product. I agree that the goal of advertising is to sell you a product or to shift how you think and, and that this can have dramatic impact on how we live, right? I mean, this is work that Cass Sunstein has done with regard to nudging people or Daniel Kahneman, right? The, the, the kind of baseline assumption that was true for economists for a long time was that human beings are very, very reasonable widgets. And what Kahneman and company showed is that human beings have a lot of embedded assumptions. And as you mentioned, a lot of evolutionary drives toward things that can be manipulated, sugar and fat being just a couple of them, but pornography being another one, right? People have, a, have an urge to look at sex and look an urge to procreate. Well, you can manipulate people into buying hamburgers by showing that on TV if you do it in the right way, apparently. Uh, so, you know, do you regulate that or do you not? I, I think that the, the question there becomes a really interesting one. I'm not sure I have a, a great answer for it. Uh, which is how much power do you give 
to some sort of authority to shut that down if the power can be used in a myriad of ways. So this goes to the the size of the power and how closely tailored the power is. And I am usually in favor in these sorts of situations of leaving a lot of power to social pressures, to communities, to how people live in coordination with the people immediately around them, to, to localism maybe, uh, as opposed to granting broad powers to an overarching authority, which can use its power to, yes, shut down lewd and lascivious material, but can also use that same power to shut down, say, politically dissenting material that they don't particularly like. So I, I would always err on the side of less authority and more kind of informal social fabric. But that that's, you asked, you know, sort of remnants of, of my religious upbringing. Part of that is living within a religious community. I live voluntarily in a community of people who tend to agree on a lot of these principles. And that makes it a lot easier for me to shield my children from that sort of stuff. You geographically are surrounded by people like uh, other Orthodox Jews. Well, so the, so the way that the Orthodox Jewish community works is that you're not allowed to walk on Sabbath. You're not allowed to ride in a car on Sabbath. So that means that you have to live within walking distance of a synagogue. So you're naturally sure. sort of gathered mm. around synagogues. You have to live within, you know, mm, at, small, at most small. a couple of miles of a synagogue if you want to go to synagogue on Sabbath. So it, it creates very uh, it creates very interesting sort of real estate price issues. Like you, you can, if, if you want to increase your, your real estate values in any community, establish a synagogue right in the middle of the community. And suddenly you'll have a bunch of Orthodox Jews who want to move in within walking distance of that synagogue, raising the real estate prices. It's, it's really odd. <laughs> I can, that those are, they're important ideas. And I, I see that like um, the, the way that you practice your Judaism is it's, it's a kind of empiricism that it's an ex lived experience in your life. I've like cobbled together an ideology almost as a refugee of my own addiction and my own hmm, disavowing of a culture that led me to believe. Become famous, become a star, sleep with lots of people, take loads of hedonic, pursuing the sort of the, the myth of hedonism, which has, you know, I grew up poor and I'm not poor anymore and I've got no complaints about that transition however like a lot of people that have made that journey i carry a kind of uh sense of burgeoning ever burgeoning kind of oh gosh it's guilt too loaded a word but certainly duty duty i feel like it's a, i have this sense of justice and like uh that, that you know i'm i wonder how it could be applied and uh, uh, and that's great and and, and the truth is that that for, for a long time, there was, and this has been commented on by, for example, Patrick Deneen in the United States, that there, there was a sense that with you know, great wealth, for example, came additional responsibility to your community, not in the form of taxes, for example, but in the form of you need to actually give back to your community, right? This is why museums are donated by, by rich people in, in the olden days, right? This is why you see people trying to, to donate more money uh, as, as you make more money and, and start foundations and family foundations. And, and yes, hire more people. I mean, the fact is that that as businesses grow, if you believe that giving somebody a job is is a is one of the best things that you can do for them, which I definitely believe. You know, I, I think that I'm giving a lot to the fact that we have 150 employees, whereas five years ago we had like seven. Right? That's that's 143 people who have jobs now who didn't have jobs with with I wasn't paying them. You know, five six years ago. So uh, yes, there is a certainly a social responsibility that comes with being that that comes with additional ability to to make your community better. Um, but that that responsibility can't be alleviated by having somebody else come in and take that money and give it to people who who or or causes that you don't believe in. One way or another, it feels to me that you've created a kind of anarcho-syndicalist collectivist life, i.e. you live within a, commu a religious community that supports your values. You have, an, you have a professional and economic community that is 
localized and it, and i'm not a person that is querying all forms of hierarchy i suppose i'm qu- querying uniform hierarchies i'm also very curious about and um skeptical about the kind of like imposed paradigms of power that prevent mobility and and i feel that when we're talking about one of the things that we've you know touched on a couple of times and agreed on is the idea that sort of corporate power allied to government power a, a government that isn't doesn't have as its priority the welfare of the majority of its citizens it seems to me that you end up with a kind of a, a stagnation uh like and i would say forms of tyranny when you sort of alluded to the idea of like what is that power doing the power is is controlling resources dominating resources avoiding and evading regulation and forming and shaping the reality of you know billions of people in the case of sort of the, the alliances between media big tech government etc um now like here are a few like as uh, i suppose as we move into this part of a conversation ben I, I like there's a few topical areas that are like a sort of i suppose somewhat hotter one is like say something like reparations right like now I, i've heard you speak about that somewhat on your videos and like say when i interview like kahindi andrews he's a, a friend of mine and a professor of black studies at a university here and he says like you know the reason like com- countries like uh, the britain and the united states could never offer the reparations necessary and i know that you're I know you're deft and I know you're expert and I know you're good at statistics, Ben, but I'm talking to you from an emotional perspective here. So like that, like they could never offer appropriate reparations because that would be to dismantle Britain. That would be to dismantle the United States of America. If those reparations were given either to the sort of countries of origin in the case of slavery or colonization or the populations that are you know sort of historically affected you know that that would be the the end of the economic resources that comprise the power of you know your nation and my nation britain but nonetheless the, the these countries were founded upon you know in the case of mine colonization the cases of yours slavery moral morality of course shifts and evolves but as it does do you feel not feel even from a religious perspective that there is a kind of an obligation to set right wrongs, to create, a, a, to redress the kind of imbalances, even if they're historic. And may I say that when we're talking about sort of like you know free market economics and like the, the right of an individual to sort of achieve and improve their life, I, I myself, Ben, I can't extract the experience of the individual from the experience of history. And just because one or two people that come from impoverished environments are able to make something of their lives, that doesn't mean, I don't think, that... historic poverty historic trauma don't bring to bear incredibly powerfully on the experience of you know certain communities within america most obviously i suppose african-american communities and and if you deny that then when looking at sort of stats around you know imprisoned males or you know or, or poverty you are by by default making a moral judgment if it's not caused by social conditions and historical conditions, there must be an individual moral failing. And we're into like we're into a really interesting territory. So what do you like? I believe that, you know, I recognize that to pay the kind of reparations due as a result of the trauma of colonization, slavery, etc., both our countries, like it would mean the dismantling of these nations as we understand them. But I feel that for these countries to move forward in a way that is, hmm, 
perhaps is is sort of morally and spiritually clear and and perhaps ultimately of better service to the the population more broadly even though the people most affected will be the most powerful and most rich institutions and organizations within these uh these particular nations i don't think that's any reason not to deeply investigate these ideas Uh, what do you feel about that so so there there are a lot of strains there so i i I would i would Trying to figure out exactly where to where to get my my arms around such a, a really profound uh, sort of question. So l- let's let's start. I think with what is true in terms of history and what is solutions oriented, because I think that there's there's a couple issues that you're you're teasing out here. One is sort of historic guilt and the issue of historic guilt, and the other is what's going to help people. And I think that we have to actually deal with both of them, right? Uh, so when it comes to history, history obviously has consequences. Anybody who denies that history has consequences is an idiot. Right? If your grandfather was poor, then presumably that had impact on how your parents were raised, which has an impact on you. Nobody is denying that. If your grandfather was the victim of Jim Crow and your, your great-great-great-grandfather was the victim of slavery in America, that's going to have some bleed-over effects. The question is, how do you quantify those bleed-over effects? And how much of the activity that's happening today, how much of the decision-making being made today is an effect of history? And how much of that is an effect of people making decisions here and now? And how much of this is the impact of institutions that exist here and now, because when it, when it comes to problem solving, saying that that there are historic problems and those historic problems have bleed over effect doesn't actually solve the problem. The question becomes, are the systems now designed to perpetuate inequality? Are the systems now designed to perpetuate subjugation of particular populations? Or are the systems now essentially colorblind and history has just had a dis- d- disparate impact on particular populations of people, which is true for literally every diverse coalition in human history, right? That history does not treat all populations equally. Uh, the history does not treat all individuals equally. Uh, there, are, there are imbalances between individuals, you know, that, that, are, that are true in terms of family structure. There are imbalances in terms of individuals, in terms of skill sets, right? That all, all this is true. Right? We are not all individualized w- widgets who are all exactly the same. We're all very different. And our families, and indeed, unfortunately, races have been treated disparately over history. Uh, when we talk about how to solve those problems, then we have to try and quantify. Because if you actually want to get to a conclusion, you have to determine how much of what's going on right now is the effect of systems that are unjust and how much of the effect right now is due to individuals making bad decisions. So one of the basic truths in the United States, for example, is that if you are a, a black person and you make the three following decisions, right? If you choose to finish high school, get married before you have babies and get a job. If you do that, Brookings Institute, which is a left-wing institute in the United States, suggests that you are virtually, you will not end in poverty in the United States. There will be class mobility because you have made the proper decisions in life. Unfortunately, a lot of folks, and it is not as a result of race, it's a, maybe that's the result of historic imbalances, but it's not going to be solved by saying it's a result of historic imbalances. 70% of kids who are born in the black community in the United, in the United States are born to unmarried mothers. This has a significant impact on intergenerational poverty. You have one person in the home who has to now earn for the child and raise the child. And this is a very difficult situation. Usually it's the mom. This also creates downstream effects because boys particularly need a a strong male influence as they enter their teenage years to sort of lay down the law. And if that's absent, that's a serious problem. So how do you solve problems like that by saying that reparations would solve it? The answer is they won't. I mean, what, what your friend was saying, that reparations don't solve the problems, I think that part is correct. When he says the systems would have to be dismantled, I would ask which systems in particular, if the idea is that any system throughout human history that has been in any way associated with uh, oppression and violation of human rights needs to be dismantled, I would ask which systems are left. So 
Unfortunately, slavery and sin and human brutality are human universals. Human prosperity is not a human universal. In fact, it's a relatively modern invention. And it is the invention of many of the same institutions that are currently being, uh, that are currently being suggested are, are the worst institutions, the institutions that have to be dismantled. The, the, the fact is that, that, for example, the free market in the United States has in fact generated more black wealth than for black people anywhere on planet Earth. I mean, the average family income for black Americans is higher in America than it is anywhere else on planet Earth. So which systems exactly are we wishing to dismantle? Now, if you want to say that somebody was victimized by the government in Jim Crow, for, to take an easy example, because that's still within living memory, and that person deserves some form of reparations from the state government for that, I actually am not wildly opposed to that. I think that, that there, there is some sense to that. If you're talking about a third or fourth generation descendant of somebody who lived under Jim Crow, or if you're talking about a third or, or a seventh or eighth generation descendant of somebody who lived under slavery, at a certain point, you, you run into some, some real problems in terms of definitions. Who exactly was victim? Uh, who, let's say that you take Barack Obama as an example. He's half black. He's half white. His father is from Africa. His mother is from the United States. His mother was white. His father was black. So he has no actual slave ancestors, for example. Does he receive reparate? Right? You run into some actual real practical problems, which have been acknowledged by people, including Ta-Nehisi Coates. Do, do, do new immigrants who are Asian, for example, have to pay reparations to black Americans? And if so, why? Right? Why, why does that make any sense? Uh, and why is it done by race as opposed to, for example, historically dispossessed groups? You know, there, there are a lot of black Americans who never had a slave ancestor because they're new immigrants from, from West Africa, for example. So how do you do it on a practical level? Second, is there a, is there a world in which a poor white Appalachian guy deserves to pay reparations to Colin Powell's son. That doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Uh, and then there is the broader question of how do you solve the problems that are underlying? And are they the result of systems like the free market? Or are those problems chiefly at this point the result of, sure, historic injustices, but a, a, a diminishing percentage to historic injustices and much more in terms of solutions to individual action? I mean, in our lives, the real question is, if, if someone came to you, Russell Brand, and said, listen, your fa- you grew up poor, right? You grew up in a family where there was, where there was some level of poverty. What was the best way to, to remove yourself from that poverty? Presumably, it wouldn't be to, to talk about all the time about how your family was really hard up and had, had real problems. The solution at a certain point, all that may be true and all that may be worth compassion and, and worth discussing. But in order to actually rise in society, in order to make better decisions, making better decisions is the only answer to... to making the decisions that are likely to lead to success. I guess the, this is where the inherent, inherent challenge between you and I would lie, in that conservatism is sort of founded upon creating arguments to protect these set of institutions and these particular set of values. When, when um, you were talking there, Ben, about solutions, it seems to me that the solutions requires identification of problems and we would look at the problems and the problems you know in the statistics that you listed my personal um uh, perspective would be that those are an indication of historical and social biases not a random set of individuals making the same set of choices by coincidence to create a 70 percent population you know for example around you know, and, and by the way i would agree with that not to cut you off but i, I would agree that there is historic impact on that although i would say that the, the single motherhood rate in the black community in 1960 was 20 percent. today it's 70 percent. it's difficult to argue racism has gotten markedly worse since 1960 or that the institutions have become more racist, but I, I agree with you. The question is, how does that individual, right now there's an individual who got a woman pregnant and then left. You can blame that on history, you can blame that on whatever you want, but that's an individual who got a woman pregnant and then left. 
The only I solution recognize... to that is to not get women pregnant and leave. I recognize that. But I tell you what I feel often, and this is, might be sort of too opaque for someone who's so rationally deft as you, but I feel like at the point that you intersect with the moral adjudication is vital. I, if you say, this is the point that we make the judgment, the point that this person has made someone else pregnant and left, that's because you know the, the, a, a measurable event has occurred. I would say, well, that's look at causes and conditions let's analyze causes and conditions and broadly as a person that's you know like uppermost in my own mind is how would god have us be how would god have us be would god be looking for us to rationalize other people's suffering saying this person's suffering is not my problem this group of people suffering that's my problem i'll deal with that or would god be saying like <laughs> i'm not proclaiming to talk on behalf of god although believe me ben it might be down the line you can see that <laughs> one of us is, is pursuing a free market business model one of us is pursuing a much more of a cult model and the, your, yours generally ends better the, people don't usually turn up at businesses with sirens and fbi tanks um like but like um but my point is that, like, you know, if we're talking about solutions, we have to identify the problems. And I think that sort of because, I, like, you know, forgive the metaphysics, but if we sort of see this loosely corralled together bunch of molecules that we call an individual as soul, you know, even I bet you're aware of the scientific studies that sort of demonstrate our even our lack of ability to actually engage in choice. I'm not saying let's have a nihilistic free for all. I'm not a lunatic. I'm saying that let's underwrite our processes of social organization with principles of compassion now of course actually this is this stuff that you're talking about now i was this is actually where i was going to ask you next is is on the free will versus determinism scale i mean now it's great again we keep going deeper and deeper here but on the free will versus determinism scale uh what i would say is that conservatism is deeply invested in the idea of human agency right that you have the ability to make choices and that when you make an immoral choice when you do something terrible to another person that you are responsible for that regardless of what your past influences may have been and there's sort of a hole in the determinist in the determinist conception of how to fix problems because the truth is from a determinist point of view there is no such thing as a problem there's just reality right there's just mm. what is because you can't change anything so it basically mm. if if human beings are are slated because of their history because of the environment because of their genetics to act in a particular way there's this sort of weird dichotomy in, in the thinking of, of some people who want to change society and that they themselves have invested with this unbelievably powerful sense of free will where they can change society and, and rectify history and act outside the boundaries of their own determined lives. But where does that free will come from? You're, you're determined just the same way as the guy next to you. So uh, the bottom line is that at that point, if you are going to label something a moral problem, you have to acknowledge that people have agency. If people have agency, then you have to acknowledge that people at a certain point have to make correct decisions that don't victimize other human beings. Yes, and I think that we, you know, if we're going to have a society at all, there has to be an acceptance of values. I feel that, like for us, given what we're experiencing now as an interconnected, globalized culture, it's clear that there are so many variants, so many inflections and accents to how people perceive rights, relationships, community, and like you said earlier, from a libertarian perspective, I, from a, perhaps, gosh, I don't know what to call it anymore, collective anarchist uh, perspective would say if people like like want to organize society in this way that's down with them as long as like i'd add a few universals don't harm one another don't harm the environment and for me all of these things lead to a kind of in, how can we must interrogate many of our presumed norms
rooms to see which things are in place. But to, like, and an issue like this one for me, it's just a you know I've I. I see it merely as a vehicle to understand some deep-seated sets of biases and beliefs. And I take on board a lot of things that you have said about, like, well, how do we resolve that? And should we be giving money to Colin Powell's like son and stuff? And these, for me, almost, Ben, with respect, seem like sort of rhetorical devices. Because it seems to me that clearly what the challenge is, is if there is inequality... Is this something we ought to be dealing with? And it like, and is this something that can ever be dealt with by sort of an a, a, an empowered centralized force, or is this an indication that we need to divest power, divest power broadly wherever possible, only centralize munici- municipal power where necessary, liberty where where wherever possible? And I, of course, haven't arrived at this conversation with the perfect version of an alternative way of organizing society, but I'm just looking at where you. And I differ as sort of um, as kind of like interesting places for us to engage. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think that one of the one of the things that's important you mentioned you're, you're exactly right that in order for us to decide on a common solution, we have to decide on the problem. But I think there, there's a second step to deciding on the problem, and that is you have to actually decide on what you think the cause of the problem is. And very often we can agree that, for example, inequality is a problem. But then where we start to diverge is what do we think is the chief cause of, of inequality, for example. And when it comes to inequality, is it inequality that's the problem or poverty that's the problem? Mm-hmm. I'm not a big believer that inequality on its own in terms mm-hmm. of economic performance uh, is, a, is a problem because I'm greatly unequal with Jeff Bezos, but I live an extraordinarily excellent life, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about inequality for me. I'm worried about not what the guy next door to me is earning. I'm worried about what a person who is not able to make a living is earning, and how do we rectify that problem? Yes, of course. Although of course we have competitive impulses and instincts within us that can be somewhat beneficial and, and also can create problems. Uh, there and and I know you will be aware there is some data suggest to suggest that sort of comparative inequality causes social tension. Uh, but but it seems to me that there is a certain inevit- inevit- inevitability to variation. My point, Ben is more about it is uh, the point i would like you to take is that if we extract the historical and social contribution to some of the statistics that you have cited we are by default saying that the collective individual agencies of you know the this set of pr- the prison population or this set of single mothers must therefore be a moral failing in a group of individuals and that it, the, i think even saying that is <laughs> is prejudicial if not actually racist see i i disagree because if you see people as individuals then that moral failing exists white and black it exists white black hispanic asian i mean just because if you draw if you take a room of any number of human beings and you draw a line down the middle of the room there will be inequalities between those human beings right there will be inequalities in terms of height there will be inequalities in terms Mm. of weight there'll be inequalities in terms of of single motherhood level in that in that room is that a sign that discrimination has taken place in the room or is that a sign that you drew a line in the middle of the room? So the question when it comes to, again, correcting lives and making people, you know, asking people to behave better and, and looking to how people can fix their lives is looking at the end of it. Again, I, this is a very problem-solving oriented thing. I mean, if you're going to talk about empathy for single mothers, of course I'm empathetic to single mothers. They're living very difficult lives under difficult circumstances. And that empathy should extend to giving charity and trying to incentivize proper decision-making without paying people to to you know, make worse decisions in some cases. I mean, one of the rationales, for, I think, for, for that rising single motherhood rate that I, that I mentioned between 1960 and, and 2021, some of that is social, and, and some of that is the government, frankly, in the 1960s, paying people not to have men in the home so that there are bad policies that have unintended consequences. But 
if I'm looking at, at people as individuals, I don't think that it's prejudicial at all to say, okay, if this individual knocks up a lady and leaves, he's done something bad. And if there are a disproportionate number of people who are black who do that, I still don't understand what that has to do with race, as opposed to a number of individuals who happen to be black doing that. It's not their race think, that's making them knock up women and leave, obviously. That would be racist. If you say that being black inherently means you knock up a lady and leave, that's racist, right? That's prejudicial. If I say nobody of any race should knock up a lady and leave, this is absolutely non-prejudicial in any way. And no matter how that stat falls out, it's still not prejudicial. But listen to me, you beautiful man. If it is disproportionate, it either means it's social and historical conditions are contributing to it or a some other genetic, biological factor, a collection of individuals disproportionate. The word disproportionate, Ben, is the challenge there. But like, um, uh, like, but like, no, I, and I, but again, I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, I, I fully I fully accept the, the idea that historic prejudice may be what is causing these disparate moves. It could also be inheritances of culture. Thomas Sowell has suggested, for example, that the higher murder rate in the black community is an inheritance from Southern white culture and also an after effect of the fact that white communities refuse to allow police to actually take care of crime in black areas because they didn't care about black people, right? These are, the, of course, I started this entire part of the conversation with history has consequences. The question is, how do you get out of that, right? How do you change that? How do you effectuate yes. change and fix the problem? And the answer there is is not, to me, predominantly the 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 expressions of, of sympathy, which are, which are nice, the, the, things that's going to, the thing that's going to make life better for a child, black, white, or green, is having a father in the home. And that only gets solved if the father stays in the home, no matter the historic circumstances that led to the father wanting to knock up a lady and leave. Sure, th I completely agree, but uh, well, not entirely agree because I'm sure there's all sorts of different ways of having a family. I don't want to get drawn into that. But like change is what is required. Change and conservatism is opposed to major change. And if like some of these things are about like are caused by social in engineering, even inadvertently, even, you know, what I, I would dispute perhaps if I had the, you know, the information in front of me, the inadvertent causes of certain welfare programs, I think a much larger contributor is the historic trauma of the, you know, the events that scarcely need to be listed. But Ben, can I like, it would be like, remiss of me to end it like to get to the end of this conversation given what's happening in israel at the moment without touching upon that given that you've made numerous videos about it like i've like i feel that the best way for me to approach it in fact if i could because i'm not a muslim i'm not palestinian i'm not jewish i'm a white english person and uh i feel like it for me to have a conversation with you as a, a jewish man who like from your you've made what your opinion and your perspective very clear in your videos and i i obviously respect you as a human being what i suppose i'd like to get to is as a, a jewish man and as a sort of broadly as a supporter of israel like i guess you'd be fair to describe you as do you do you not what do you think Israel could do differently in order to resolve the current problem? And do you concede that a lot of people find the imbalance in military power very, very difficult to take? I know you've spoken at length about sort of Hamas's sort of stated ideological ideological stance and you know sort, sort of uh, you know like extermination, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, um, which you know I guess these ideals are if I was someone that was on the receiving end of that kind of rhetoric or that kind of legislation, whatever you want to call it, um, I, I guess I would be offended by it. But where do you think there is room for compassion to the cause of uh, Palestinian people? Where do you think there is room for Israel to concede? Where is it that you feel 
um, conflicted or challenged by what's happening at the moment, Ben? Well, I mean, frankly, I feel like there is a stagnation and stalemate, and it's not likely to end anytime soon. And the reason for that is because, frankly, it's very difficult to negotiate with negotiating partners who literally refuse to accept that you have a right to exist in, in, in the case of Israel. Hamas says in its 1988 charter, it does not have any aspirations to allow a Jewish state to exist. It reiterates that in its latest version of the charter. Hamas spokespeople are going on TV literally today saying that Israel has no right to exist and openly bragging about hiding rockets in civilian areas and firing rockets from civilian areas and into Israel. Uh, the, the, Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip, which is where this conflict is, is predominantly located right now. Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip in the entirety in 2005. Hamas took over in 2006 and has been running the place ever since, right, for the last intervening 15 years. And conditions there are utterly awful, obviously. And when people look at imbalance of power, they tend to believe that imbalance of power is some sort of symptom of exploitation in some way. I, I don't tend to believe this generally. I don't think the two have anything to do with one another. I've seen imbalances of power that are resulting from exploitation, and I've seen imbalances of power that are not resulting from exploitation. And the fact that Israel is a, is a thriving Middle Eastern democracy in which of its 9 million citizens, 1.9 million are Arab, and and has a, a thriving economy and a, a very powerful military says nothing to me about the, the morality of, of the conflict itself. I mean, the, the, it's, it's sort of a bizarre line that I've heard taken a lot, that imbalances in military power somehow mean that the, the party with more military power is doing something immoral in, in its military action, uh, that uh, it needs to be proportional. This is a logic that has never been applied to any war literally in human history. I mean, no, nobody would have made this argument about any war that's been fought by, by pretty much any power that, that having more military power suddenly puts immorality on your side. That's, that's a, it's, it's, it's almost a disassociated thing. I mean, even the UNRWA, which is, a, which is a, an extraordinarily pro-Palestinian organization, even they admitted today, actually, that Israel has been using extremely targeted attacks, that Israel in this particular conflict was using extremely targeted attacks targeted at Hamas weaponry, targeted specifically at Hamas fighters. I was attempting to distinguish between the civilians in, in the Gaza Strip uh, and, and the military targets in the Gaza Strip in a way that Hamas clearly was not and brags about not having done. Do you feel that from what you said about like this idea of imbalance of power has never been brought up in previous conflicts, although in a sense, I would say much of the discourse around the power politics and um, you know, patriarchy, for example, is predicated on sort of precisely this that there has sort of been this these systems of dominance. Do you think that? Do you feel that Israel is uh, treated ideologically differently? And do you think that there is a correlative between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? Do you think that anti-Semitism plays a role in the critiques of Israel? I mean, I think that the correlation is extremely high. I, I think that you could probably find people who oppose You can certainly find people who oppose actions by the state of Israel. I oppose some actions by the state of Israel uh, on, on you know, a wide variety of issues. But the, that doesn't mean anti-Semitism. But I will say that people who believe that the state of Israel ought not exist, those people have a very high crossover with people who don't like Jews generally. Uh, and this is, this is a real problem. Uh, the, the State Department of the United States, for example, has defined anti-Semitism with regard to Israel as treating Israel with a double standard. Let's put it this way. If there were a terrorist group that were located just across the English Channel and were firing literally 4,500 rockets over the course of 11 days across the English Channel and into the center of London, even if London had Iron Dome, I presume that the British government would not sit on its hands or even engage prominently in pinpoint attacks on that 
sovereign enemy power. I assume that, that the people of Britain would not allow that sort of thing. Israel, every two or three years, goes through something like this. And Hamas maintains its power base in Gaza. Hamas continues to receive funding from Iran and build up its, its rockets and, and brag openly about its human rights violations. Uh, Israel has, has repeatedly offered the possibility of a Palestinian state, including large swaths of East Jerusalem. Uh, Ehud Barak famously did this in 2000. The, Intifada, the second Intifada followed. Uh, Ehud Omer did this in 2008. That was followed by a, a Gaza war in which Hamas began firing rockets into, into Israel. Listen, I'm not going to pretend that everything that Israel does is, is wonderful and incredible, but no state is wonderful and incredible. The question is, is Israel being treated with a massive double standard? And I would say that any civilized power in the West that was hit with 4,500 rockets over the course of 11 days, chiefly aimed at its civilian population, would not have responded in nearly as humane a fashion in Israel as Israel just did during the Gaza war. Well, you would take, for example, like the United States response to the 9-11 attacks and the way that that was used to kind of ease into the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, even though there were broadly no reasons to pursue those goals in those territories. Well, I mean, the goal in Afghanistan made a little more sense than the goal in Iraq, to be to be sure. Uh, but but yes, I mean, the, the, the fact is that after 9-11, the United States invaded Afghanistan and invaded Iraq. Uh, and And certainly... Were there to be missiles fired across the Mexican border into San Diego, I have a feeling that uh, the American flag would probably be flying in Mexico City in fairly short order, uh, at least for the moment. And that when you said about it, um, like sort of, if it was Britain, I feel like, uh, it, you know, there would be dissenters within Britain. There would be people looking at, well, what is the, why is this happening? And do you think that 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 the only motive is the 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 Hamas want to annihilate the state of Israel and have no interest in reaching any solution other than the absolute annihilation of Israel and and there is no possibility of a different solution and I suppose the reason you know that's one question and the other one sort of I suppose it was on my mind from when you said it is I think what the idea is around power is if the, the side with if there is a conflict the side with the most power militarily has the most powerful stop and that means has the most power to decide the outcome and again i'm referring to the kind of ideas we've that we've returned to throughout our conversation about god and sort of simple values i recognize that the way that states behave i, I recognize what sort of military conflict is but as, as a man and personally do would you not like to see a kind of a convivial um, convivial a kind of a solution between these two sides that was beneficial to so would, so would every israeli i know with very few exceptions right i mean and and i think that there are some palestinians who do also and are currently living under the boot heel of hamas in the gaza strip or the palestinian authority and islamic jihad in in the west bank or judea and samaria the the fact that that you know Israel, it's not my opinion that Hamas doesn't want to make peace. It's Hamas's stated opinion that they don't want to make peace. I mean, they're, they're, again, they're not being shy about this. What's so astonishing about this particular aspect of the conflict is that Hamas has not hidden the ball in any way, shape, or form. And when we talk about Israel's military imbalance, that's true. Israel does have a massive military imbalance with Hamas, which should suggest to people that when Israel participates in a war in which they do not, in fact, utilize that vast military imbalance to flatten large swaths of, of the Gaza Strip, for example, that's an indicator that they're trying to be a lot more pinpoint than I think people are, are giving them credit for. Not I think, than I know people are giving them credit for. I mean, the fact is that in terms of overwhelming military superiority, Israel has it versus Hamas, right? Everybody acknowledges this. 
And, and this is, in fact, why people were calling for a ceasefire, which Israel granted, right? While Hamas was still firing rockets at it. So it's, so it's, it's th- this conflict is, it's, it's shocking to me how many folks have, have been willing to you know, grant Hamas a benefit of the doubt that Hamas does not even want or claim. That, that, that's the part that's sort of shocking to me. Like, there can be all sorts of discussions about territorial solutions, so long as the parties acknowledge that once a territorial solution has been carved out, then there's a solution. But if one, you, you can't force somebody to love you. And you can't force somebody to live with you. And, and the simple fact of the matter is that what is being relitigated here is not the 1967 war, the Six-Day War. What's being relitigated here is the 1948 war and the establishment of the state of Israel in the first place. So, you know, if, uh, unless the solution that is being proposed is the elimination of the state of Israel, then I'm not sure what, what and obviously Israel is not going to accede to that particular request, nor should they. Uh, I'm not sure what a solution would look like with regard to Hamas. See. There, there, is there anything, and I recognize you know, you're not a politician, you're a commentator, you're American. Like, is there anything that you think, is it, it feels like you're quite, um, when you talk about this, if you're emotionally invested in this, are you? Does it feel like, do you, is this something that affects you as a, a Jew? So I'm, I will freely admit that as an Orthodox Jew who wears a yarmulke around, that I am pro-Israel. I, I'm very much a fan of the idea of a Jewish state that exists to protect all of its citizens, including Israeli Arabs, uh, and that the period between 136 CE and the destruction of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 1948 uh, was not a particularly good period for the Jews. So the idea of having uh, a, a, a state that exists capable of protecting Jews is, is not a bad idea. From that position then, and that position only, is there anything that you think that could be, like, aside from... I'm not in a position, I'm not an expert, you know, I've, I've, my cards are out. I'm just some bloke from Essex in England that overall and in general and, and actually quite passionately really believes in the capacity for human beings to live together better. And that's the sort of the level that I'm um, appealing to you on and speaking to you on. And I guess like, a, you know, like a, the often the retort to that kind of... Uh, um, declaration is you're naive you're childish you're it's preposterous this is the way things are this is the way they've got to be but do you do you not like again as a god-loving man as a family man is there not something in you that feels like what could we yield and by we i mean you as a sort of a, an online and media supporter of israel what could i propose that other than firstly the critiques of israel are amplified because of anti-semitism and hamas do not want a solution they want genocide and like if you like you know no one in the world like that feels like it's putting up an argument that no one can argue with that like or, or perhaps some people could but like i'm not interested in that conversation i'm interested in look it feels like israel are more powerful and if israel are more powerful and you know, particularly with the kind of sort of you know well-reported alliances, like that, does that not to you suggest that there could be a that the the, the the obligation to for proposing and creating a solution lies with the people with the most resources and power to create it, or in this case, state. Um, I mean, the answer to again, I don't think the power imbalance has anything to do with the intentions of the actors in a negotiation. So to take it down to the very personal level, if you and your ex-wife are are living in a house together, and your name is on the the deed, right? Or, or let's say that you're more forget the deed. You're you are more physically powerful than your ex wife for for for, an ex, for the for purposes of this example, right? Because we're now trying to make uh, international negotiations happen in the context of a divorce case. So we have a, a husband and we have an, a wife who wants a divorce, and the husband is very physically powerful. He's very physically powerful. 
And and the wife says, I want half your assets. I'm out. What can the man do to prevent this? I mean, if she's, if she's intransigent in the position that she wants half the assets and she's out, I mean, I'm not sure there's a lot that can be done, even if he's more physically powerful. In other words, what, what needs to change in the Middle East are hearts and minds, not the, not the balance of power. If Hamas were to have uh, military power equivalent to Israel, that would not create a, a, the impetus for peace. That would actually create the impetus for a much larger war. It, to take an example, this is what Israel is afraid of uh, on its northern border with Hezbollah, because Hezbollah is a lot more powerful than, than Hamas is. Right? They're afraid there that if Hezbollah were to overwhelm Israel's Iron Dome defenses, and that would turn into something that looks a lot bloodier and a lot more like total war than what we just saw in, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, so it's, yeah, it, it, when it comes to negotiations, power only matters if power is leverage. And you can't leverage somebody into accepting or loving you, right? Because they still have the capacity for their refusal. And Hamas is exercising that capacity for refusal every day. And, and their people are paying the price for that. I mean, the, the simple well, fact of the matter is that if the, the, there are Arab states around the region that have currently normalized relations with Israel and they're reaping the benefits of that. Israel has no intention on doing anything to the UAE or Bahrain or Yemen or, or Sudan, rather, or, or Morocco. They, they have no interest in, in you know, some sort of aggressive play with regard to that or with regard to Saudi Arabia, for, for that matter. In fact, in the Middle East, there is only one group of people who have ever given up any sort of land won in a territorial war, and that, that is the Israelis. The, the Arabs have given up zero land won in a territorial war. Do you um, feel, um, what do you feel about like Orthodox Jews that are sort of actively protesting and saying that, that they condemn Israel's actions? That, that particular, very that French group, right? So, so the, the, this is a community I know well. There, there's a very French group called the Natere Karta, uh, and they believe that the state of Israel uh, was a mistake because the Messiah was supposed to bring the state of Israel and it's supposed to be a theocracy. It's supposed to be a religious state because Israel is a secular state uh, that, that is a state uh, that, that it has some sort of cultural Jewish uh, totems uh, and, and also is a majority Jewish. Uh, they, they're, not, they're not a fan of the existence of the state of Israel. So that's why you'll see, for example, in the Torah Karta Jews going to Iran or, or hanging out with Hamas because they actually have the same goal as Iran or Hamas when it comes to the disestablishment of the state of Israel. And what about um, non-Orthodox Jews that are also anti-Israel actions? What do you feel about that? I mean, so my view when it comes to religion is that I really only care what people observe. So the, the, one of the weird things about Judaism and, and how people are counted as Jews is that Judaism is in ethnicity, uh, and then it's also religious practice. And so when people say, you know, what do non-Orthodox Jews think about X, Y, or Z, I would have to determine, you know, their level of observance, how much they care about these issues. I mean, the reality, just because you're born into a Jewish family doesn't mean that you care very much about these particular issues. Just as if you're born into a Catholic family, this doesn't mean that you have like very strong feelings about abortion. Like, if, you're no longer, if, if, you, if you're no longer Catholic and you don't practice Catholicism, you could have a wide variety of opinions on abortion. It's sort of like that with regard to, to Jews who don't practice Judaism. They're ethnically Jewish, right? They're, they're born into a Jewish family. But I can't actually decide what their values are based on ethnicity because, of course, ethnicity doesn't dictate your values. No, it doesn't, Ben. And I'm going to refer that back to a conversation we were having 15 minutes ago. Um, <laughs> I agree with you on that with regard to, with regard to race and, and with, regard to, with regard to ethnicity, with regard to Jews. With regard to, that's true for everyone. Right? If you treat everybody as an individual who's capable of agency, you're much better off than if you suggest that somebody's race is dictating their values. Yes. And then, like... What I feel like is when we, it's just very, I, you know, I've done videos about this stuff like 
years ago because obviously this is a per perennial, sadly, conversation. It will continue to be a perennial problem. Yes, we can do videos about this 20 years into the future. And unfortunately, there's not going to be. <laughs> we, we can just fast forward 20 years. You and I will be older. Our kids will be already out of the house. And then we can go on vacation together and talk about the exact same conflicts. That's where things are going to be in 20 years. Ben, I will still be saying, even on this beautiful imaginary a holiday that's presumably being filmed for reality TV. It would be ridiculous for them not to take that opportunity. You... Well, capitalism <laughs> dictates we must. I mean, <laughs> That's right. We've got to, ultimately, we have to bow at that particular order. And for all my fancy, fine English-accented words, here I am selling this stuff. Um, look, um, yeah, I, okay, I guess, yeah, let's wrap it up. I mean, we've been talking for a while, but, like, I guess what I feel like is to, like, that in your analysis saying that sort of the state of Israel is uniquely critiqued and condemned and there is a sort of a, a timbre of anti-Semitism, if not downright anti-Semitism in that, and that Hamas's stated goals of the, execu you know, the annihilation of the state of Israel means that there is no, um, nothing else that Israel could be doing. Those two things, those sort of rather... You you know, intransigent monoliths, ideological monoliths. I, I feel that what that what troubles me about that, and what troubles me about any sort of situation of conflict, is when they, when there is no sort of when there isn't sufficient concession, when there isn't this, that, that when there is no f potential fluidity. No, like, and I. I feel like if I investigated this myself from from a spiritual perspective, all of the times when I find myself in conflict, there's usually something I can do. And again, it's very difficult to transpose individual morality onto this kind of scale. And again, this is my f a further argument for decentralization and a kind of anti-statism more broadly and, and, and more devolved powers, confederacy. I, I feel that there's something about the inflation of power to this kind of scale that brings about these kind of irresolvable problems. And But Ben, you know, gosh, we've been talking for a while now. Well, this has been really uh, a pleasure and this has been a lot of fun. So I really appreciate you, you taking the time, dude. Thank you. And um, I, I really do uh, appreciate and value your time and the spirit in which you conduct these conversations. Thank you. Hey, thanks. Back at you. I hope you enjoyed that. I'm doing live dates in the UK this autumn with my new stand-up show, 33. Tickets and info are available at russellbrand.com. Also, Revelation, if you've not listened to that yet, do. And meditate with Above the Noise. You've got it for free already. Sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com and have a listen to some of the other episodes we've done. Keep checking out my YouTube channel for new videos. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Under the skin goodbye